podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And we are here in real life, IRL, for the very first time since starting the podcast. I know, it's strange. It's very awkward. (laughs) It's quite awkward. I want to ask how your week's been, but for the very first time I'm actually here and we've done stuff together. I know. What did we do? Went, Went and got a coffee? Went and got a coffee, went to Waterstones. It was really exciting. It was great. Saw Hamza. Yep. Shout out Hamza. We love you. But yeah, it didn't rain, so that was that was handy. I locked you out of the flat. We're really back on track. <laughs> yeah, uh, I won't lie. It was a bit of a stressful week, but uh, it's fine. It's all over now. <laughs> it's all over now. And we get to be here and stare at each other over the monitors, which is delightful yeah sure (laughs) (laughs) so yeah let's just get started then Emily what are you infatuated with this week this week I am infatuated with the ocean at the end of the lane by Neil Gaiman it's a nice title it's a lovely title I'm actually going to talk about the title uh, in a second but yeah, my dad just read this and it's a Neil Gaiman book I've not read. I like Stardust. That's like one of my favourite books mm. ever. And uh, although I've not read Coraline, like I love the film version of that. So always up for some Neil Gaiman. And yeah, this one came out 2013 and it started as a short story, but he loved one of the family so much that he decided to just make it a novel so it's great so yeah I want to talk about the title actually the ocean of this title is actually a pond but one of the characters calls it her ocean and claims that it has these magical properties where it contains knowledge so you've got this like big grand magical thing that's at the end of a very mundane lane and I just really love the juxtaposition especially because as you'll kind of hear as I'm talking through it, this book is full of magical realism and that line between like the mundane and the fantastical. Um, so I think it's a really great title for it. Yeah, it's like a really pretty title and like I like that idea of something can just be your ocean rather than being an ocean. The book's epigraph is a quote from Morris Sendak, who's the author of Where the Wild Things Are. And the quote is, I remember my own childhood vividly. I knew terrible things, but I knew I mustn't let adults knew I knew. It would scare them. (laughs) And this was one of Neil Gaiman's inspirations for the book. And I'm going to talk about this quite a lot, but it's that idea of the differences between children and adults and how they view the world. That's basically what this book is about. Oh, I love that. It is a book about childhood but not necessarily for children. So Neil Gaiman actually says uh, it's a book for anyone who has ever been seven years old. Oh! <laughs> Which I think is lovely. That is lovely. Oh, I feel the nostalgia happening already. Yeah. Come on, hit me. It's so nostalgic and actually... Oh, I didn't even write this down, but let me find it. Oh, there's a wee quote right at the end. So for anyone who picks up Neil Gaiman's books, he often has little interviews at the end of his books that kind of describe like his writing style and stuff. Oh, I'm so down for that. Yeah, so he says, My favourite response to this book is when adults say, My childhood was nothing like that. And it was as if I was reading about me. Oh, How do you manage to be so poetic when you're just talking though? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so sweet. Okay, yeah, I'm ready. I'm geared up. Let's go. So the main character, who doesn't have a name, is an adult coming back to his childhood home to attend a funeral. And he's reflecting on this life which he had completely forgotten. So I I think he's around 40 at this point. His old house isn't there anymore. So he's looking around and he wanders down a lane that would have led down from his house. And he comes across a pond where she suddenly remembers a girl called Letty calling an ocean. And then when he remembers this ocean, all the memories come flooding back. And then those memories of him at seven years old is like the bulk of the text. The book is very introspective and full of 
lots of questions about memory, storytelling, childhood, um, and also that idea of young people wanting to be older, but older people wanting to be younger. And I'm sure you can enjoy the story at most ages, but I think those themes are going to connect, like, the older you are. I imagine so, anyway. The stronger the nostalgia is going to be, the further you're separated from it. Yeah, definitely. So to get into the book a bit more, one of the big questions of this book is if the events actually happened or if he imagined them. Ooh, very Bridgeter Bithia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he was going through quite a traumatic summer at this point. Um, so he discovers a dead body, which kickstarts the plot of the book. His parents are going through like money problems, so they rent out his bedroom and hire a nanny so his mum can work. Um, right. So they've got two people working. Right. And he brings up this little yellow sink that's in his room often because it reminds him of when his parents had the money and inclination to install something like just for him because it was like perfectly proportioned to him. And he hates the idea that an adult is now using it. He feels like it's really wrong. Oh wow, that's such a weird image. Yeah. So it's like a sink, like it's just a sink in his bedroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like a little wash basin. Yeah. And obviously, it's such a like minor issue, but in a child's mind, that's mm-hmm. huge. Like that's such a big thing. And I think it reminds us, like as you're reading, that even though it's an adult technically who's telling the story, you're in the child's mind. Like that's the kind of yeah. lens you're looking at everything through. Dad is also cheating on his mum, which the narrator sees, although he doesn't really know what's going on because he's seven, so like he doesn't really get it. So basically, you could read this book in a way that this boy who's he's obsessed with like reading and imaginary worlds, mm-hmm. basically he created a fantastical world to escape from the yeah. real issues that are going coping. on. Coping mechanism kind of thing. Yeah. I like to think, though, that like a lot of Neil Gaiman stuff there's always going to be blurred lines. That's just what Neil Gaiman does. (laughs) Yeah, also, like, why would you not want to believe in magic? Let's believe in the magic. Yeah, exactly. So I think Neil is really interested in that divide between children and adults, and it's something you see in other works of his, like Coraline, for example. Mm -hmm. So the parents don't listen to her. She seeks out this other world where she has parents who love her and dote on her. But the other mother is revealed to have this like villainous intention and it's quite similar to the nanny um, in this book. So she essentially comes to the house to break apart the family. She's perfectly loving to everyone but not to the narrator. But no one will listen to him because he's a child so he's just seen as acting out. Oh, it's so sad already. Yeah, so it's that classic case of parents not believing their child when they tell them something that like shouldn't make sense Mm. when Ursula the nanny is there the mother appears less and less as well and she's often explained as being away at work and the father becomes more aggressive towards him being manipulated by Ursula to go as far as like abusing his own child that's so interesting as well like that she's called Ursula because it's like she's stealing his voice yeah I don't I don't know if that is why, but that's how I pick. Like, yeah. I think he chose the name for that reason, right? So yeah, the fantastical elements get more extreme as the book goes on because the trauma that's happening to him is getting more extreme mm. as well. Okay, so let's change pace <laughs> and look at another household. So the Hempstock family are three women who appear like child, mother and grandmother. And I say appear because I think they're the same person. Oh my God, I'm so in. <laughs> So I read it as that, like, mother maiden crone, like, kind of trope, which I probably should have researched more, but I think it's got something to do with the phases of the moon as well. Yes. And the moon comes up a lot in that household. Like, the the grandmother likes having a full moon every night, so there's always a full moon outside their house. Oh, that's so cool. There's something in Sabrina about that, is there not? The mother maiden and the crone. Yeah, I, th- I think there might be actually. That rings a bell. And there's some in the Persephone myth as well. It's like yeah. the mother tries to save the daughter, but the grandmother actually saves the daughter. Yeah. And but they're all the sa- three of the same phase. Yeah, I don't know if it originated with the Greeks. I feel like it might. I feel like the Persephone myth is like the original yeah. mother maiden crone. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. But yeah, I lo- I love that part of the story. So they have some kind of magical ability. And they essentially give the narrator some refuge from the house that he's wishing would go back to normal. 
so he first meets Letty, the the girl, mm. who's around eleven. Although she suggests that she's been around a lot longer <laughs> than eleven years. I love just on a side. I love when you have like that in magical stories where it's like a child and they're like casually just like, oh yeah, I'm like five hundred years old. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, she becomes a friend and a protector to him. The mother figure is Jenny, and she always feeds him the most delicious sounding food. And the grandmother figure, old Mrs. Hempstock, is this worldly woman who, she does a spell at one point on his parents so that they agree to let him stay the night at their house so that she can, like, protect him. And, you know, they're just nice to him. They don't treat him like a fool. And I think for children that can be a very magical thing. Someone that believes you. Yeah, and, you know, it kind of plays on that idea of like people being miracle workers but they're actually just being like helpful oh yeah that's so nice so yeah i think if you do read this through the lens of him imagining the magic like making it up then i think you can view them as just providing them with like love and care and attention Mm. but he finds that so magical because that's what is lacking from his life and it's like that there's there's got to be something in the fact that it's like an all-female household as well Yeah. yeah they do mention like he, he asks why there's no men in the house and they're kind of like, oh, well, there was at one point, but they left. <laughs> like... Fucking rude. <laughs> so yeah, I actually wanted to talk about the food um, that I mentioned a wee bit because it's one of the things that I could picture so clearly when I was reading it. In the boy's house, the food is always described as bad in some way or another. So his dad always burns the toast and he thinks that Ursula is trying to poison him so he doesn't eat any of her meals. So he's just hungry all the time. But when he goes to the Hempstock house, he's fed with the most delicious sounding food. Mm. Uh, So I've got a couple quotes. So one of the quotes is, She gave me a china bowl filled with warm porridge from the stovetop with a lump of homemade blackberry jam, my favourite, in the middle of the porridge. Then she poured cream on it. I swished it around with my spoon before I ate it, swirling it into a purple mess, and I was as happy as I have ever been about anything. It tasted perfect. Oh, oh, it's so warm. Yeah, it's just so lovely. And th- this is quite early on in the book, so he's just met them and mm. they're giving him this food that like, just warms his heart and he feels at home and it's just, yeah, it's lovely. And that's like interesting as well because they're sort of the witchy house and that's like, like food is obviously the, it's a common thing like in Hansel and Gretel and things yeah. like that, but it's obviously been subverted, like they're not, it's not a trick. Yeah, exactly. And the second quote here is Dinner was wonderful. There was a joint of beef with roast potatoes, golden crisp on the outside and soft and white inside. Buttered greens I did not recognise, although I think now that they might have been nettles. Roasted carrots, blackened and sweet. I did not think that I liked cooked carrots and so nearly did not eat one, but I was brave and I tried it and I liked it and was disappointed in boiled carrots for the rest of my childhood. For dessert, we had the pie, stuffed with apples and with swollen raisins and crushed nuts, all topped with a thick yellow custard, creamier and richer than anything I had ever tasted at school or at home. That line where he said, I was brave and I tried it and I liked it, has broken my heart. Yeah, I love it. It's like, it's that like childlike wonder of trying new stuff. Mm-hmm. But also being like, I remember when I was a kid, I was so fussy and, like, food was such a trauma for me in general. So, like, trying something took genuine guts. Mm -hmm. And, like, oh, I felt safe enough to try it. That's so sweet. Yeah, it's so sweet. (laughs) I know this this book, like, it makes me happy, but it breaks my heart at the same time because I just care so much for this child. And, again, I I think this is to show dysfunctional and disappointing his house is compared to Mm -hmm. this one where he's loved and cared for. So I think Neil Gaiman is interested in the idea of everyday magic and how stories are magic can actually help you. So the idea that the stories we tell ourselves as children can make a tough situation feel more bearable, but as an adult, you kind of lose that gift. So that's why when the narrator's older, he can't remember any of this stuff happening. It's only when he's back at the pond and with the hemp socks that he actually recalls what happened. So I obviously don't want to share the ending, but I I do want to talk about it in like a roundabout way, because mm-hmm. I just think it captures the tone of the book so well. 
so essentially all you need to know for this quote is that he sees something which his adult brain knows can't exist and he's questioning what it was so this is literally the very end of the book it's the last paragraph perhaps it was an after image i decided or a ghost something that had stirred in my mind for a moment so powerfully that i believed it to be real but now was gone and faded into the past like a memory forgotten or a shadow into the dusk I love the phrase a memory forgotten. I just think that's so beautiful. And I don't really know why, but I love it. It is really beautiful. It's like, it gives me a lot of anxiety though as well, because that like idea that you can forget your own memories. Yeah, like I think, I think it's kind of, it makes you question what memories are. Like if you forget a memory, does it still exist? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah, this is like a theme that is threaded throughout the book and at one point he's actually given the option to forget the abuse from his dad through like the Hempstock's magic, but he says, I want to remember because it happens to me and I'm still me. So bear in mind, this is a seven-year-old who's like brave enough, I would argue, to like want to remember something, even though it's horrific because he knows it makes him the person that he is so wise yeah and i think it brings up that idea that we were talking about a couple episodes ago with the binding by bridget collins like would you ever get a memory taken away if you could as well though when you're a kid you are so much i think you're so much because you've got that access to the kind of magic or whatever it is we're going to call it i think kids are a lot braver at confronting their own memories and like yeah. the things that happen to them and they are a lot more simple in their outlook as in like this is what makes me me and so that's that's just what it is whereas I think it's more adults that like try to escape their memories yeah and I think I imagine if you asked the adult of like this character that mm. question he would probably have said yeah get rid of it yeah whereas him as a child would have said no so yeah this it essentially ends on a question this book like it's always going to be open-ended so you're left wondering if it was real or not, kind of like I said at the start. I like to think it was magical. I like that Neil Gaiman creates extraordinary stuff out of ordinary stuff. So I like to think it's real, but I like that he gives you the option to kind of decide for yourself. I like that, like, yeah, you've got an option for allegory if you want to take it. So that's really all I have to say about this book. It's, it's quite a short book, so it's hard to talk about too much without just given the plot away but yeah I've I've not even mentioned the totally fantastical elements but there are ones that are a lot more fantasy for the the little quotes that stuck with me so I thought I would go for those today oh I love that and I like that you focused on like the sensations and stuff well because it's like this is a book about memory and I feel like I don't know f- food is one of those ones that it, I think you can get quite a vivid memory from definitely well, that actually, like, it's weird because the book that I've picked, I picked it because it's about memory and the way that your senses can connect to your memory. <laughs> so I didn't know that you were going to talk about that. We're on theme together. Um, so the book that I'm going to talk about is Idaho by Emily Ruskovich. She's an American writer who lives in Idaho. Shock. I'm going to just read the blurb of it because... The story is a mystery and I don't want to give away any of the plot, so I'll read the blurb just to situate what it is that I'm talking about. One hot August day, a family drives to a mountain clearing to collect birchwood. Jenny, the mother, is in charge of lopping any small limbs off the logs with a hatchet. Wade, the father, does the stacking. The two daughters, June and May, aged nine and six, drink lemonade, swat away horseflies, bicker, sing snatches of songs as they while away the time. Then something unimaginably shocking happens, an act so extreme it will scatter the family in every different direction. In a story told from multiple perspectives and in razor-sharp prose, we gradually learn more about this act and the way its violence, love and memory reverberate through the life and every character in Idaho. So that's the, that's the inside blurb that comes on the book, but then... I have this proof copy because I reviewed this book and this is the the blurb on the back of the proof and I think this gives it more of an insight into what happens. Jenny opens the truck door. On the dashboard is a styrofoam cup filled with lemonade. She gets into the passenger seat. She takes the cup in her left hand and gulps. 
cool, sharp on the roof of her mouth. She waits for the sugar to push through her veins. She sees the forest beyond the white rim of her cup. She closes her eyes. The hatchet is still in her hand, hanging out the door. Wow. Yeah, yeah I like that. I like that more than the, yeah. the inside cover one. So do I. That's what made me want to read it to begin with. I'm not going to talk about the plot, really, but that's just to sort of situate. Obviously, there's this incident that happens with this family. It's violent. There's a hatchet. And it really does sort of scatter them. So what I really loved about this book is that it's obviously there's a lot of ways that you could tell a story of something really violent or tra- and traumatic, but it's told from a long time after the incident and it's actually told mainly through the lens of the second wife of the father and she tells the whole story focusing on sound and smell and so the the effect that you get there is that obviously smell like the olfactory system is like one of the most potent memories so you feel like the atmosphere of every scene becomes really really vivid and really visceral and with sound she's a music teacher in it so the whole book takes on this weird like rhythmic kind of quality it also becomes very very quiet which is like an unexpected side effect of it but because there's so much focus on sound there ends up being very little direct speech so the atmosphere becomes like sort of insulated you're kind of in like a little bubble of the book it's really really haunting it's really creepy so i thought i'd just like pick out a couple of quotes that i thought did this really well um so this is from right at the beginning of the book the truck that was up the mountain with the family that day now sits outside the house where Anne lives with Wade, Anne is the new wife. And sometimes Anne goes there to the truck and that's how the book begins. A few years after Anne and Wade married, Anne found a pair of deerskin gloves in a toolbox high on a shelf in a closet. They were much nicer than the work gloves Wade usually wore and seemed to be brand new except for the odour of something burned. That was how she learned about the mouse in the first place. She asked why he kept the gloves stored in their closet instead of using them. Wade told her that he wanted to preserve the smell. What smell is that? The smell of a rodent's nest that caught on fire. The last smell in his daughter's hair. It was a long time ago now that he said things like that. And then, a couple of pages later, the smell would have been there on the way back too. It is the one constant. It connects two things in Anne's mind that she can't manage to connect otherwise. The drive up the mountain and the drive back down. The drive back down is the part Anne comes here to understand. Wow, I love that idea of the like connection that yeah. it connects the two. Because that, that'll be the same when you're reading it as well, I imagine. Yeah. If you like hear about both of the smells. like Definitely. The way that they've done it, because obviously Anne's not been there when this incident has happened... Mm-hmm. But the truck kind of is like a like a museum almost to the incident. And so when she goes there, everything that she takes in sensually from that truck is the same as what it was that day. And like that idea of trying to connect through your senses is all the way through the book. There's, um, again, I'm trying not to give too much away, but there's a plot running through the book about Alzheimer's. So the idea of memory not being something that's embedded in your personality but embedded in your body, there's a lot to do with muscle memory and then obviously the truck as a as a physical yeah. remnant and smell and touch and things like that. It's just like, it's just a really like visceral. Yeah. That's so interesting that it's got Alzheimer's in it because I um I work for a perfume company that I will not name, and I've had customers in before and I remember one of them she was buying a fragrance for her dad and she said oh he's got alzheimer's so i can't have certain ingredients in it because she was like because some i can't remember what one it was but some note that would have been in like some fragrances she's like that just triggers him and sets him off and makes him really aggressive because it it obviously just triggers something in his brain so that's always stuck with me that i remember finding that out right when i first started my job and i didn't even know that was a thing yeah like I knew oh smell is one of the like strongest like Mm -hmm. ties to memory but I didn't realize it could affect you in that way 
Well, yeah, like my mum, my mum's a beauty therapist and she does aromatherapy massage yeah. and things like that. And she, like part of your consultation for an aromatherapy massage is like, you say like what kind of things you want to treat. So like if it's tension or if it's worry or anxiety yeah. or, you know, and then she'd like pick a selection of oils but then she has to say like are there any of these that you just can't stand the smell of and apparently some clients can have really really violent emotional reactions and like a lot of people leave aromatherapy massage like crying and things like that and it's not because it's bad but it's just because it releases like a lot of emotion so yeah that that line when I reviewed this book that was the line that I I started my review with because it just like blew me away that um the smell would have been there on the way back to it is the one constant yeah i love that idea the other point that i wanted to make there is it's told there in present tense Mm -hmm. and the whole book is in present tense but it jumps in time so each chapter is the it's a year so like you've got like 2008 1995 so does is it like chronological or does it jump no it jumps about but every chapter is present tense So you get this idea of like time just ceasing to exist and like the memory becomes the same as the present day. Yeah. And so like the the memories never really stop replaying. Yeah, it's like that idea of like like memories feel so real that it's, it's as like if it was it's as if it was yesterday. Yeah. But it, like it was ten years ago. Yeah, exactly. I obviously there's the Alzheimer's storyline, but there's also a huge trauma storyline. Yeah. So it like binds that idea of like something replaying and just never ending. The other sense that really comes through in this book is sound. So this was one of my favourite sections of the book and as the the story goes on, the chapters become a lot shorter and it becomes a lot more fragmented. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like a really clever way as well of showing like the way that memories can break up over time. I'm going to read essentially half of a chapter here, but it's only a couple of pages. This one is May 2025. There was a long time ago that Anne tried to find out what Idaho meant. There wasn't an easy answer. The history was so intricate and poorly recorded. It seemed at first to be the Shoshone word for the way the rising sun moves downward along the edge of a mountain. But reading deeper into the history, she found out that it was a lie. There was no word like Idaho in any native language. It did not mean, as so many sources claimed, gem of the mountains. The real story seemed instead to be about a miner, a delegate to Congress. He was playing with a little girl in the house chamber of the nation's capital. She was the daughter of a friend of his, a little girl named Ida, She wasn't supposed to be there in the house chamber, but she was, playing with this man, a stranger to her, while discussions went on around them about the name of a proposed state. When suddenly she ran away from him, towards the door that led into the halls of Congress, he called out to her, Ida, ho, come back to me. Come back to me. When the other delegates heard his exclamation, they asked him where he learned such a beautiful word. They did not understand his shout was meant for a little girl no longer there a little girl they hadn't noticed. They thought that he'd been so overcome with inspiration for a name. A sentimental man, he replied that it was the only word worthy of such a rugged land, and in an instant he made up a story. He told them he had heard the Shoshone chant the word at dawn. He told them it was how they described the rising sun, the gem of the mountains. Congress was moved. By a landslide vote, the territory was to become, with Denver at its centre, the state of Idaho. Well... Yeah. What I think I loved about that chapter is A, it has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the story. It's a complete meandering on Anne's part and I think that just shows like because it's near the end of the book it's obviously shown the way that all of this trauma has impacted her even though she wasn't there and she's sort of starting to break down. I also just love the way it focuses on like sound and the way that sound can tie to a landscape but that also like that idea of how things get named i feel like there's something really childlike in that story yeah obviously i don't i don't know if that's the real story or if maybe it was a shoshone chant like i i've deliberately not looked it up because i don't really want to know but when i was little i used to think that things must have just been named because it was the sound that someone made when they saw it like there's something very instinctive about that 
So, like, I used to just think, like, oh, you know, someone saw a chair and, like, their brain just came out with the word chair and then it became a chair. I don't know. But, like, I think, like, that idea of it being, I don't know, spontaneous and instinctive and then that sound being adopted and given a meaning, Mm -hmm. like, that then you can give language a memory through etymology and things like that. I don't know. I just thought it was really beautiful and it made me understand why she called the, the book Idaho. But also the reason that that really resonates when you read the rest of the book is that the incident that happens at the top of the mountain, as you got from the little bit that I read out in the blurb, if I just quickly skim over it again, she opens the truck door, she drinks the lemonade, cool, sharp on the roof of her mouth, she waits for the sugar to push through her veins. She sees the forest beyond the white rim of her cup. She closes her eyes. The hatchet is still in her hand, hanging out the door. There's no sound. Oh, yeah. And so it's almost like the vision of the little girl running away, the, like, Idaho, come back to me. It really feels chilling in light of the absolute lack of sound and lack of scream from the trauma. And the third little quote that I want to to bring from this book, just because I want to show the amount of variety that's in it, I don't really have a coherent, like, train of thought for this book I just I'm like look at this this is cool I don't think I'm spoiling too much if I say that after the incident one of the daughters is missing and so there's a there's a search for her that goes on and on and one of the latest chapters but the earliest flashbacks um to 1995 which I think is the year after it all happens is from the point of view of a bloodhound that is searching for the girl. Oh, wow. Okay. It's the only time that you get a non-human perspective. You you, you don't always get Anne's. You sometimes get Wade's. You sometimes get the daughters. You sometimes get Jenny, the, the mother's. Mm-hmm. But this is the only non-human one, and it just blows me away. He bores this tunnel through the thicket of smells. The bear a week ago, musk trapped in the mats of his fur broken open by the trunk he rubbed against. The pine whose grey bark a day ago was peeled off by sour teeth smelling of digested grass and fear and even stone. Thrown fragments of foam from being startled. Rabbits too. He smells the newborn rabbits underground where the afterbirth has dried and the eroded dirty fur. Some just born, some old enough to have returned wounded. The blood already licked up off the pine needles by coyote tongues, rancid and smelling of starvation or other dogs, not on a hunt, but with hay in their fur and the insides of houses, digging half-heartedly with their pungent snouts and piles of scat sweetened and bittered by post-frost elderberries. The bears eat to sizzle and slime the tapeworms out of their intestines. And the soil itself, dry, splattered here and there with urine, human and animal, and the stream shaken out of fur or off fingertips, gummed with mud and sweat in something sickly artificial. At times the undercurrent of exhaust, trucks, a chainsaw nearly gone now, antlers clashed against one another, a dull, shredded smell. Small flies, their crushed brains on human skin and under weeds. Men's fear and cortisone, batteries shaken inside the lights they hold, a muted metallic buzz in the nose, tree bark cooling and crystallising sap like honeycomb, honeycomb itself, beetles stirred, rubbing bushes of spoiled flowers, cooling weeds, a cat's breath on claws licked clean. And one man smells harder than the rest. The smell is a kind of staggering, dangerous, other people on his clothes, and the dog won't go near that man. Though the man is trying hard to follow him closely, his desperation teeming, the smells of his anger and need water falling over his shoulders, over his hands, out of his mouth, calling out its sour hot odours. The man has been inside that glove, the glove that they've held over his snout, the warmth of the glove, the sweat inside, the deer it was once the skin off. Inside that glove is the truck, which smelled like blood but other things too. Carried out on dirty, perfumed hair, on skin lashed open in cuts no thicker than threads, candied breath hot with salt and near vomit, but almost gone, evaporated, the bright zing smell of seeds burst open from pods grazed by a child's fingertips, or else by the leashes, whiskers, snouts of other hounds, whose heads so very long ago, hours maybe, have lifted and moved on to other trails. Oh my God. If you'd like asked me what I thought a bloodhound's like, inner monologue would have been, that's not what I would have said, but... Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah, obviously it's like 
you have a little bit of the dogness because it's so chaotic. Yeah. But it it's not meant to sound like a dog. But it's just yeah. when I say that this is a book about senses. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Like that was five sentences that I just read. It's just overwhelming. And like when you think about the memory that a smell has for a dog, but not just the trail of it, but like the trail of it back in time. Yeah. To, you know, like the the batteries inside the lights or like the deer antlers clashing on their heads, all the actions that can come off a smell and that we just have no concept of. It just blew me away. Yeah, I'm 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 like speechless. (laughs) This book just has mastered memory and sense put together because it's so visceral and so bodily like it does stay with you and I think lately like obviously with pandemic I've been thinking a lot about you know how fragile your body is and how everyone's so breakable so like if you're like me and the crisis upon us has made you want to like really examine the fragility of your flesh prison then I think that this is a really good book to read because it just really helps you understand your relationship to the world around you and like the natural world and like your cells. <laughs> Great. Well, I love that we both picked books that were so focused on the senses and memory and stuff. So, have you been writing much this week, Emily? Uh, no, <laughs> not really. No, I've been quite busy this week, so I, I haven't written a lot. But I thought I would just talk about something that I've been trying while writing. This section has basically turned into me just giving people random tips that <laughs> have been useful for me. So, so here's another one. I have been making Pinterest boards to have like a visual reference oh. to like refer back to. Huh. Um. So we've already talked on here about how like a visual stimuli or whatever Mm. can like inspire you or like trigger a thought Mm. that you run with so this is a similar kind of idea but you've got you know loads of it in one place you can kind of scroll through it so I like Pinterest specifically for this purpose because it's all I mean I'm sure most people have gone on Pinterest but it's all like a tile kind of pattern so you can scroll through it all but also see a broad overview of everything and how it all pieces together so currently I've got three boards for three different characters and then one board that's like a general look at the vibe okay. that I'm going for with my novel. That's a good idea. For some examples, on the character boards I have pictures of like celebrities or like people that I think kind of look like my characters. Some of them have like specific expressions that I like want because sometimes it can be useful to have a visual reference of an emotion so yeah. you can like describe it. I've got like clothes that I think they would wear, like makeup as well. And for like the general boards that I've got, I've got like some of the celebrity pictures, but more of like landscapes or like places I mention and also artwork that I think has like the tone Mm. of what I'm going for. So it is all a big jumble of stuff and I add to it like every now and then, but I think it's a good way of brainstorming without just writing like a list or like a mind map or something like it's it's more visual like a mood board yeah it is basically a mood board and and you could do it like physically you could just have like files on your computer Mm -hmm. or whatever but I just think Pinterest is good to like yeah it's kind of already there for you yeah it's like it's done for you so yeah so all my boards are private but I think what we could do is post like maybe like a screenshot of them or something or like a little snippet of them maybe you'll think it's interesting and so yeah, that's all I kind of have to say, but I was just going to ask you if you've ever done anything like that. Do you ever have like visual things that you go back to? I know visual things have inspired you, but do you ever yeah. like go back and look at stuff? Do you know what? I very rarely do, but I very rarely work on long pieces that take me long enough to finish that I would refer back to things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like I haven't done that, but it might be useful because I've kind of hit a wall with my novel, I'm not going to lie. Like, I've not really done that much work on it recently. And I've been working on other things, but maybe that would be a new way for me to yeah. cement what it is that I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Because I do often feel like I'm sort of... I work a lot more with the sounds of words and, like, yeah. 
what words make me think of but that only can take you so far yeah and you then you need actual concrete details like a like a setting or what a character would look like or what they feel you know the things that novels are made of (laughs) so no I haven't but I definitely will now (laughs) yeah it's like I also just think it's quite fun like brainstorm and you just kind of click it and it's there and you've got this like image that yeah that you can refer back to I'm I'm such a like aesthetic person that like I like having like a nice looking thing yeah so it just pleases me when I go and look at the boards I'm like oh it's nice (laughs) yeah and I suppose it's nicer like if you want to just be into your world for a bit but you don't want to actually sit and slog through a scene yeah I think it was last week I talked about like music and Mm -hmm. stuff so a couple times I've like I've played the playlist that I've written and I've looked at the boards and I feel like I get like a it puts me in the right mindset that's really cool because yeah I, I quite often I find it really easy to write in certain conditions like if it's sunny outside mm-hmm. and it's coming in through the window a lot of my novel is set in the daytime in quite bright places mm-hmm. so that's like easy for me to to yeah. write then but if it's not like that in the real world yeah. then I find it quite hard to write so maybe if I had like a board that I could look at to put me in a sunny mindset yeah so I'm basically just like trying out every tip possible to try and motivate myself so that's another one I have come with a tip as well this week because I need to give it give tips to myself because like I say I've been in a total slump Mm -hmm. recently and so I I was kind of waiting for it to pass I don't like to put too much pressure on my writing because it's not my day job and like it is a passion thing and I don't want to like suck the fun out of it Mm -hmm. but it had been like three weeks and I hadn't really written anything I was like nope this is too much we need to sort this now so I did one of my favorite things to do when I'm in a slump which is to write an ode and I took that strategy from one of my favorite poets Olivia Gatwood because she writes odes to so many things she's got an ode to the color pink um, which is like one of my favorite poems ever she's got an ode to the women on long island she's got an ode to her period underwear (laughs) like and i think as well because i've realized it's one of my favorite bits of her books to go back to is her odes because they feel fun and often hers take on a lot more meaning and significance and she's really really crafted them but as an exercise it can just be really fun to take something around you and write an ode to it just for the sake of it Mm -hmm. and it's actually very own brand for infatuated it's just to like that is true yeah our episodes are basically odes to (laughs) to to whatever we're talking about so like yeah and the ode is it's not always it doesn't have to be but it's typically a poetic form that's like affectionate to its object of address um it can just be contemplative but um it's usually affectionate and it can be silly or it can be serious and best of all for me it doesn't conform to regular meter or anything like that it is a it is defined as an irregular meter poem. Do you know what's so funny? This is a very random introduction, but whenever I hear ode, I immediately just think odes to haggis. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I did, like, Robert Burns, like, competitions when I was in school, oh, but I hear ode and I am automatically, like, to haggis. <laughs> <laughs> See, that is so funny because I didn't do Robert Burns at school very much and my, when I hear ode, I hear an ode to the women on Long Island. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, is an amazing video, her accent that she does in that video. I'm going to link it. It's so good. (laughs) So this week, I basically, I bought Blue Mascara for the first time in about 10 years because I wanted to and because I was in lockdown and I was bored. And it came and it was like the first time that I felt something (laughs) for about a week. I was like, yeah, I'm so excited about my Blue Mascara. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to pick my Blue Mascara and I'm going to write an ode to it. It actually took me, as all these stupid little prompted exercises do, once you decide and you sit down and you actually set yourself the task, it took me right back to like being 15 and into the world of like nostalgia and those kind of themes and like the theme of femininity and the politics of that and like the idea of identity because it's makeup. So, you know, you've got your idea of the face that you choose as opposed to the face that you wake up with in the morning and the idea of being attractive or the idea of being empowered and just so many little associations off of one object which is obviously what an ode is supposed to do it's supposed to explore the object in full so yeah i would really recommend an ode 
if you're stuck with writing because it's basically what you told me to do last week when I was saying that I was stuck with my yeah. scene and you were like why don't you just write everything you can about it yeah. I can't for some reason my brain's not working on that story right now it just it's stuck but that was a really good way to just get words flowing through me again yeah sometimes it helps like even if it's nothing to do with a project that you're working on just to write anything yeah exactly get into a mindset yeah and that was the other thing I was going to say is just like I'm bad for forgetting and getting really tunnel visioned about this is what I'm working on so this is the only thing I can do yeah yeah. and actually that's an unhealthy way to look at things and sometimes you just need to write for the joy of it yeah and for nothing else so that's my top tip for this week is if you're stuck write an ode that's nice I don't know if I've ever written an ode before or like not thinking that that's what I was writing but I might have to try that but a lot of the time, like, you wouldn't have to write it as a poem as well. You could write it as a letter yeah, or, like, yeah. a paragraph or an ode can be anything, really. But as long as it's exploring one thing in full. Do you have a quickfire favourite this week? I do. So, my quickfire favourite is a YouTube channel called dead meat (laughs) so i'll explain what it is i found this because i stumbled across a video they did with rhett mclaughlin who i love from rhett and link and good mythical morning and it's part of a series called what's your favorite scary movie which is a scream quote and that's my favorite scary movie so i was like oh interesting so i clicked on that And this channel has those videos where they have a guest on to discuss their favourite horror film. They also have a series called The Kill Count, which is where they break down all the kills in horror films. And they talk about the plot and stuff as well. But what I like about them is that they break down all the kills into statistics. So, like, how many died in the film, what the ratio of, like, men to women is, like, the average time between kills... They also award like a best kill and a most boring kill <laughs> like each episode, which I just enjoy because I think that's hilarious. And they also have a podcast, which I've not listened to yet, but it looks like they go way more into depth about like tropes and themes and oh. stuff. So like the final girl trope was like one that I noticed. Okay. Because I do know about that trope. Like there's, always, well, not always, but in kind of like your typical slasher film, the final girl is like the virgin who's like made it through the film yeah. because she's a virgin. So they, they've done a whole podcast about that, which is cool. I'm going definitely going to listen to that. Oh, may, may have heard a little police siren there. That sounds really cool though. Yeah, so if you like horror films or just film in general and don't mind gore, it might be a good watch for you. I don't actually love horror films. Like no. I don't, I don't really watch them. Like I, I find them too unintentionally cheesy yeah. and like overacted but I do love looking at like genre and tropes and breaking mm-hmm. all that stuff down so I, I like and asking why there's specific rules that have to be adhered to in yeah. like films so I find it interesting from that point of view the English student in you is love and life yeah so like the the horror is just kind of like a byproduct for me yeah. but yeah it's really good so that is my recommendation this week see you just make me smarter. <laughs> like, I'm going to watch that now and I never would have and I'll know things that I would never have known. What is your quick fire favourite this week? My quick fire favourite this week is a Netflix series that you might have seen the trailer for or you might have even watched, but I doubt it because it's a sitcom and you hate sitcoms. <laughs> I don't hate them, I just don't really watch them. It's Space Force. Um, I've not even heard of this. Really? So... I heard of it because I edited a review of it. It's very new to Netflix and it's written by Steve Carell, which is what piqued my interest in it because I like Steve Steve Carell. And the name Space Force comes from Donald Trump's new government branch, Space Force. And so it's a kind of... I don't want to call it a satirical comedy because it's not satirical. It's quite earnest and wholesome as a show. But it's definitely politically aware and like let's just say it pokes fun um rather than absolutely satirizes trump the the premise of the show is envisioning what space force is going to be 
but to the most ridiculous extremes. Um, So it follows Steve Carell's character, who is like a general or something. He's high up in the army and he thinks he's going to get to take on the Air Force and they make him take on Space Force. And he's the first Space Force commander. So he plays the the commander. John Malkovich plays the lead scientist. And Lisa Kudrow plays Steve Carell's wife. So it's very, very funny, and I'd recommend it. They take Trump's Boots on the Moon by 2024 slogan and absolutely rip it apart, in my opinion. I watched it all in about a week. It's only got, I think, maybe nine or ten episodes, and they're just sort of 20-minute ones, so it's like a comfy watch. But what I liked most about it is that it is funny and it's silly, but it does manage to create quite a compelling, like, run-through plot, mm-hmm. even though it sticks to the structure of like a traditional sitcom where something different happens in every episode the characters are already quite deep they're all quite rounded out there's a couple of little stereotypical moments but it does more to bash and invert stereotypes than to enforce them they're more there to layer subvert yeah like it's just it's just a likable show so i think if you're looking for something to give you a wee bit of hope whilst not completely i think what i've been finding difficult lately is that if i watch something that's too like escapist and hopeful i'm like it doesn't feel real like i don't i just can't suspend my disbelief enough to believe in this but this kind of takes place in a weird in-between world that's like reality but not quite so sore okay cool Okay, Rebecca, time for your rant. My rant this week, I've even given a title to my rant this week. My rant this week is called Five Cookies in a Bag. Okay. So last week, my mum came back from the shops with a lovely treat for me and my dad. White chocolate chip cookies. Delightful, delectable, I was thrilled. But after we'd each had one, with our cups of tea, naturally... We were faced with an issue that has plagued us as a three-person family for the 25 years of my existence. Who gets the extra cookies? We need to not misunderstand this here. If it was a four-pack of cookies, I would have no complaints, right? The average family is four people, so I accept the logic of a four-pack, inconvenient for us as it may be. However, this was not a four-pack, it was a five-pack. Meaning either one of us gets just one cookie while the others get two each, Or you start doing some ridiculous, like, thirding of cookies. Which, no, I'm not doing that. And so then I started thinking about it. Who is served by the five-pack? There are not that many households that have five people, right? Folk don't have three kids that much anymore. So. So. (laughs) I don't think that's true, but okay. I think it is true, (laughs) right? Like, I feel like when I meet someone that's got more than one sibling, I'm like, wow, that's a a big family. If you're not a five-person household... Couples cannot split that five pack equally because you're going to get two each and then, what, half half the last one? That's boring. Households of four certainly can't split it equally and no one wants a quarter of a cookie. Yeah, speaking as someone from a household of four, I I agree with that. It is annoying when there's only one left. Right. So who benefits from this inherently unequal system of odd-numbered cookies? Only the people selling the cookies. Because what they want you to do is buy two packets so that you can create an even number. It is a con. So here is my appeal to the cookie sellers of Scotland. Packets of six, right? Because that way, a couple gets three each, a three-person family gets two each, a four-person household gets one each, and then you can split the remaining in half. Five-person households, sorry, yous are going to have the problem that we're all having. But to be honest, give it to your mum because she's had three burns. So, she deserves the extra cookie. That's the only sensible number of biscuits per packet. Six cookies in a packet. Thank you. Bear doubt. Oh, okay. I enjoy your rant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how passionate. You just got about cookies. (laughs) I had this rant. I wrote that down, but I actually had the rant in real life. Oh, I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got an insight for us this week, Emily? Yes. What I thought I would share today is a little quote from the Labyrinthos app that I was talking about last week. Mm -hmm. So for anyone who hasn't heard it, it's like a tarot card app and you can learn how to read tarot. And the reason I want to mention it is because it ties in freakily well (laughs) to the ocean at the end of the lane. And the book that I'm talking about next week, 
just a little teaser for you. So this quote is in one of the reference tabs in the app and it's called The Meaning of Magic. There is an ancient saying found in Hermeticism from which we can derive what magic really is. As above, so below. What this means is roughly this. The earth mirrors heaven, man mirrors God, the macrocosm mirrors the microcosm. The world is simply a mirror of our own inner worlds. The boundary between these two is arbitrary and self and other are really just one. If you understand yourself and your reality deeply, all paths of action will be clear. Hence the usefulness of the stories the tarot helps you tell. Magic becomes simply understanding what each symbol does in relationship to the others and the world, and interacting with them. This meaning of magic teaches us that once we shed our inner light on the story reality is telling, we can see all parts at play and transform it. So go tell yourself some stories and rewrite them. Don't you think that's fascinating? I think that is beautiful. I love that. It just, it's amazing because the whole time you were talking, it made me think of physics. Yeah. And like understanding the world. Mm -hmm. If you understand the logic of what the world around you is trying to tell you, you're going to understand everything. And I know like some people will roll their eyes at like tarot and magic and all that. But like you can look at this in a very, yeah, with like a scientific brain. Yeah. Not thinking, you know, magic is real. Like whatever, you believe what you want to believe. But I just think that's beautiful. I also like that. I like that little last line as well. So tell yourself some stories and rewrite them. I love that. And that really ties into yeah, what you were saying about your book and then obviously what I was saying about mine, the yeah. idea that memories are really just the story that you tell yourself yeah, over exactly. and over and that's how they can change mm-hmm. because the story you tell yourself yeah. changes. So yeah, it's a very fascinating little quote from that app. I, d- I, didn't, I didn't think it was going to be so philosophical when I got this app, but yeah, it's great. So the question that was submitted to us by one of our lovely listeners, Hannah, when it comes to books adapted to TV shows, what is one that you like and one that you didn't? Oh, I know the one I didn't straight away. Okay, go. What is it? Um, The one I didn't like was the Shadowhunters um, TV series. It is not good. Uh, Really sorry, guys. (laughs) I think the casting was great. But they just made it so cheesy and it didn't need to be cheesy. Like, Aww. look, there's a bit of cheese in fantasy, right? We know this. Yeah, but there's like, is it like James Bond cheesy? No, it's like um, the CW cheesy. Oh. It's like, you know how like Riverdale started off really cool and it just... Yeah, and then it just descended into like it thought it was self-aware, but it was just yeah. shit. That's kind of what happened to Shadowhunters. Also, they just rewrote stuff that... right. I'm about to go on a rant for a second. We know that you have to get rid of things when you're adapting to TV or film, right? Mm -hmm. Like from a book. Because... It won't all fit. It won't all fit. And like the good thing about books is that you can meander, but you don't want to be watching that. Mm -hmm. But don't cut out stuff that matters to the plot. Yeah, that really bugs me. Like, they, yeah, they really just did that. And I only watched the first season, didn't even go back and watch. I think they did four in total. But I looked up what the finale was and they just totally rewrote the book and it just really bugged me because it was a really good ending to the book. So that's the one I didn't like and I'm just going to sit and reflect on what <laughs> what one I did like. That is like one of my pet hates is like, because I, I try not to be a the book was better kind of gal. I don't like to be that person and also I you have to recognise that it is different. It yeah. is based on a book most of the time. Yeah. But when... The worst is when they do the same actions as the plot in the book, but then they'll make it have a different meaning. And the sort of overall, like, overarching message just becomes wrong. That infuriates me. I'm trying to think of an example and I can't, but I'm sure that I'll think of one when this is over. (laughs) I'll say the one I didn't like, and I'm going to be honest here and say I didn't even make it to the end of the book for this, but I just really hated this TV series was 13 Reasons Why. The reason, and I'm going to do it from a book perspective here, the reason that I don't like the series, and there are many reasons, but the reason as a book reader that I don't like the series is that it was supposed to be about all the reasons why one girl killed herself. It was not supposed to be about someone doing mass shootings 
and someone getting away with being a predator. It just grew arms and legs and not in a good way. And I'm sure that like a lot of people will come at me for this because I know that a lot of people love it, but I just think it's shit. And I think that it's it takes so many issues that should be handled and handles them badly. Yeah, because I, re- I read the book years and years ago and I remember I really liked it and I watched the series and I just felt like some of the scenes I thought they handled well and some I thought were just, oh, this is really kind of glorifying yeah. stuff. It felt like it sensationalised everything yeah. that was tragic about the story. Yeah, and I didn't feel like the book did that, but I haven't read it in years, so I, I could be wrong, but I didn't feel like the book did that. I felt like the book like really... I must have read it when I was about 13, 14. Yeah, that's and I, I think that was the first time I'd really read about suicide and issues like that. Mm. And so I think it was very good for me to read. But I don't think the TV show does the same thing. No, I think as well the book... It does kind of fall into that like romanticising... It does a bit. ...mental health. But I think that in the fact that the TV series got made so much later, it had an opportunity to rectify some of the things that the book yeah. fell into and it just leaned into them instead. Yeah. That's, that's what I didn't like about it. And then also it like went past season one and did arms and legs of its own. And the one that I... Well, I have two that I liked because there's one that I know that you're going to agree with me, which is a series of unfortunate events. Oh my god, yeah. The tone of that adaptation, the second adaptation, the TV Netflix one, was perfect. Yeah, that was spot on. Absolutely pitch perfect, the the actual visual tones, the direction, but also the tone of the humour, the casting was brilliant. Because I actually don't mind the film, I think it's good, but I don't think it's like... I don't know, the TV show just did it better. Yeah. And I think sometimes TV works better for book adaptations because there's more space. There is more space. I can't really describe it other than I felt like the TV show hit all the same beats that the book hit. Yeah, so like the narration mm-hmm. I loved in the TV show because they actually spent a lot of time doing, like just purely reading from the book. Yeah, and creating the character of Lemony yeah. Snicket. I adored it. And the other one that I have is probably like a unpopular opinion, but Elementary. Oh, I've not seen it. It's a Sherlock Holmes adaptation for anyone that doesn't know, but it's the one where Watson is a girl and people go off about this. People really don't like it. <laughs> but I think personally, I've only read, I've not read all the Sherlock Holmes books. I've read excerpts from them. But from what I've read of it, Elementary captures the relationship between Sherlock and Watson and the sort of darkness and struggle of the Sherlock character so much better than any other Sherlock adaptation that I've seen. And that is why I think it's the best one. Obviously there's like the kind of, there's a massive study of like the homoerotic tension between Sherlock and Watson. But I think that making Watson a girl and subverting so in elementary they never get together spoiler but you think they're gonna because it's that kind of show where you expect the male and the female lead to get together because heteronormative society and the fact that they've made her a girl and then refused to do that and they do other things um with their own love lives with the characters love lives that really cement the platonicness of that relationship and i just think it's beautifully done i just think it's really good and i think that it gets a bad rap because People don't like Lucy Liu being Watson, but actually, she's very good at it, so yeah. leave her alone. What's one that you liked? I think I might say quite a new one and say Normal People. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this has probably <laughs> watched it because it's been huge. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's such a good adaptation. Normal People, the book, is so... So much of it is introspective and it's a lot about... It's, it's very much inside the characters' heads. It's mm. about what they're not saying to each other. And that is so hard to put on screen, but they did it perfectly. Yeah. You know, the way that, like, Connell stumbles over his words when he's trying to talk about how he's feeling and Marianne always has this look of, like, he says something that she doesn't like and you can see it on her face. But yeah. then she says, like, oh, no, that's fine. Like, because yeah. she's so used to doing that and... I don't know how they did it. I'm, I suppose it's the cast and the direction, but they just managed to get that really introspective mood onto screen, which I think is like miraculous. It's, 
it is honestly I completely agree with you and I think like so much there's so much to praise about it but like one of the scenes in the book that I didn't believe until I saw it on the screen was like the first time that they get together and they're in Marianne's house and she says can we take our clothes off Mm. and I was just like I don't believe in this like 17 year old Irish wee girl saying that line but then I saw it on the screen and then like I believed it also the consent scene is just great and is should be in every film and tv show and book yeah every single teenager should be made to watch that as part of sex education exactly i wholeheartedly agree they should also be made to watch sex education oh my god sex education you have to watch that if you've not seen it it's great so that is us for this week i believe yeah, it's been a fun one. It has been. It's been very strange actually seeing you. Not on a screen. Yeah, not on a blurry Skype screen. <laughs> Hopefully this one will have less glitches than previous episodes. Yeah, we hope so. And we think even when we're recording remotely, we think we will be able to crack the glitches. We think we've worked out another system. So If you have any comments or questions for us, we have our email at infatuatedpodcast@outlook.com. And we also have social media, which I will link in the show notes, along with all the things we've talked about today. Yeah. Thanks for anyone that's bearing with us through the glitches. We love (laughs) you. Um, And we'll see you next week. Yep, see you next week. Bye. Bye!